from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, October 12th. Today, the Supreme Court confirmation hearing for Amy Coney Barrett and her role in the 2000 election, plus how Oregon came to vote by mail. Good morning, everybody. Judge Barrett's family, welcome. The hearing to confirm Judge Amy Barrett to the Supreme Court will now begin. On Monday, the Senate began the first day of hearings to confirm Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. This is a vacancy that's occurred through a tragic loss of a great woman, and we're going to fill that vacancy with another great woman. The bottom line here is that the Senate is doing its duty constitutionally. We checked in with reporter Sung Min Kim to talk about what we heard from the opening statements. So far, you've seen a pretty common theme emerge, particularly from Democrats. Uh, sources told me ahead of the confirmation hearing that their strategy was really going to, going to be focused on health care, health care, health care, especially for these hearings. Senator Whitehouse. Chairman, Judge Barrett, America's worried about one thing above all else right now, and it's our health. This hearing itself is a microcosm of Trump's dangerous ineptitude in dealing with the COVID pandemic. Every senator, every Democratic senator is going to ensure that health care and the fate of the Affordable Care Act really is at the top of their agenda and is the top of mind for people who are watching this hearing. And you're kind of getting already getting that sense today. The bottom line is this. There have been 70 attempts to repeal the ACA, but clearly the effort to dismantle the law continues. So let me be clear. Just a week after the upcoming election, the Trump administration will be telling the Supreme Court to tear down the very law that provides health care protections in the middle of an ongoing pandemic. And the Affordable Care Act is a really relevant issue here because if Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed before Election Day, she will be on the court to hear this uh, very significant case over the fate of the Affordable Care Act. It is a lawsuit brought on by Republican attorneys general insisting that Obamacare is unconstitutional and it has made its way up to the Supreme Court. So far in her judicial tenure, Amy Coney Barrett has not had to rule specifically on the Affordable Care Act, but she has had writings criticizing, for example, Chief Justice Roberts for his 2012 opinion upholding the ACA, which gives us a kind of a clue as to where her judicial philosophy is when it comes to that issue. And Republicans are really focused on kind of shielding her for these attacks. You know, this has been telegraphed for a while. And so they're pointing out many things. First of all, that, you know, when you're considering a judge, when you're considering a justice for the Supreme Court, that you shouldn't look for outcomes, that you're not 
you know, judging and confirming a justice by the kind of policy outcomes that he or she may have before the Supreme Court. You, in fact, are not being reviewed for a legislative position or a policy-making position. You're being reviewed for a position on our nation's highest court, where you'll be asked from time to time to decide cases based on the law and based on the facts. First of all, they're trying to focus also on our qualifications too. I mean, and she is a you know a renowned Notre Dame law professor. She is a current uh, circuit court judge. Has had sterling clerkships, including on the Supreme Court. She's a top legal scholar, a professor in the mold of the late Justice Scalia. Her work is widely respected in the legal community, and it's clear why her former students voted her multiple times to be the distinguished professor of the year at the Notre Dame Law School. There has been a question whether Democrats will um, make an issue out of Judge Barrett's uh, personal Catholic faith. She's a devout Catholic. We all know that. She and her husband have chosen to raise their family according to their Catholic beliefs in faithful fellowship with other Catholics. We all know that. Heck, 65 million Americans are Catholics, and many, many, million, many, many millions more are Christians of other persuasions. Are they to be told that they cannot serve in public office? So you're already seeing that line of attack come from Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican from Missouri, and some other senators. And you will certainly continue to hear that for the rest of the day and for the rest of the week. And, and this confirmation hearings obviously are taking place under the most unusual of circumstances. You know, I've attended uh, Supreme Court confirmation hearings where the room is packed. You know, there are hundreds of credentialed reporters. There's barely enough room for my laptop at the media tables. And that's not the case this time around. The Senate Judiciary Committee is abiding by rigorous social distancing guidelines in the Hart Senate office hearing room. It is a large, large room where all Supreme Court confirmation hearings are held, but there is a very limited number of staff, senators, administration officials and members of the media who are allowed in that room. And there are a handful of senators who are participating virtually. Um, Senator Ted Cruz and Senator Tom Tillis, who either were diagnosed with COVID-19 or had close exposure to someone who had been diagnosed, are participating at least for the first day remotely. And Senator Kamala Harris, who is the most junior member of the committee, but also the party's uh, vice presidential candidate, she will be participating from her um, Hart Senate hearing office room, saying that she felt the environment was unsafe to participate in person. In Amy Coney Barrett's opening statement on Monday afternoon, she talked about what she brings to the Supreme Court, her perspective as a mom of school-aged children, the fact that she would be the only sitting justice who didn't go to Harvard or Yale. And she talked about her approach to judicial decisions, saying that she believes in the rule of law above everything else. Courts have a vital responsibility to the rule of law, which is critical to a free society. But courts are not designed to solve every problem or right every wrong in our public life. The policy decisions and value judgments of government must be made by the political branches, elected by and accountable to the people. The public should not expect courts to do so, and courts should not try. That is the approach that I have strived to follow as a judge on the Seventh Circuit. In every case, I have carefully considered the arguments presented by the parties, discussed the issues with my colleagues on the court, 
and done my utmost to reach the result required by the law, whatever my own preferences might be. Sungmin Kim is a White House reporter for The Post. So, Beth, you have been looking at a particular part of Amy Coney Barrett's career history. Tell me more about that. So as a Florida native and someone who actually covered the Florida recount in 2000, I was fascinated to learn that Amy Coney Barrett on her Senate questionnaire where she has to reveal a lot of things about her background mentioned briefly that she was in Florida during Bush v. Gore in 2000. We'll hear argument now in number 00949, George W. Bush and Richard Cheney versus Albert Gore et al. Uh, before we begin the arguments, the court wishes... 20 years ago, when a presidential election came before the Supreme Court, Beth Reinhart was a political reporter for the Miami Herald. She's now an investigative reporter at The Post. And I wanted to know more. And why did that strike you as significant? For a couple reasons. One is that the president has said explicitly, this is going to be a contested election. I think it's very important. I think this will end up in the Supreme Court. And I think it's very important that we have nine justices. That's why I need to put Amy Coney Barrett on the court as quickly as possible so that there are nine justices to make a call in a contested election. This scam that the Democrats are pulling, it's a scam. This scam will be before the United States Supreme Court. And I think having a 4-4 situation is not a good situation. If you get that, I don't know that you'd get that. I think it should be 8 nothing or 9 nothing. So that climate, that context is crucial. Plus, I knew that both John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh, current members of the court, had also played a role in Bush v. Gore. So if Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed with the speed that the president hopes, we will have three out of nine justices who will have been in Florida during the only contested election to be decided by the Supreme Court. And here we are possibly headed toward another contested election, or at least in the president's mind. And what exactly was Amy Coney Barrett's role in what happened in Florida in 2000? She was a young lawyer. She was only three years out of law school, an associate at a a small boutique law firm in Washington. And she was dispatched to Florida because her boss, a partner in the firm, was part of the team representing George W. Bush. And the issue at hand was not the overarching Bush v. Gore litigation, but sort of a offshoot of that. At stake was tens of thousands of Republican absentee ballot votes. And Democrats were calling those votes into question, bringing lawsuits, alleging that because their request forms, not the ballots themselves, but the request forms, had contact with Republican Party officials, and I'll explain that, that the votes themselves should be disqualified. And the issue that the lawsuits centered on was thousands of Republican absentee ballot request forms that had a missing voter registration number, 
uh, just this logistical snafu that Republican Party officials had sought to fix. And Democrats argued that essentially tainted those subsequent votes. One other thing I should mention is that although this absentee ballot case was not at the center of the recount, it wasn't the overarching Bush v. Gore, it really did matter. We're talking about thousands and thousands of Republican votes. And had those been disqualified, had Democrats been successful, that would have definitely cost Bush the state and the presidency. So this was a situation where Democrats were looking at these absentee ballots and saying that they should not be counted and that Republicans, including Amy Coney Barrett as a young lawyer, was fighting to have these absentee ballots counted. Exactly. And that's what's just so interesting in light of the president's relentless attacks on absentee ballots in the past few months saying they're rife with fraud. In fact, his campaign is already in court in Iowa trying to throw out thousands of absentee ballot request forms kind of over a similar issue. They're really trying to tamp down on absentee ballot voting in a way that has alarmed a lot of activists across the country. So then where does that leave Amy Coney Barrett? And what is our sense of how she could rule if a similar issue is brought up to her in the court now after she's confirmed? I don't know that we know the answer to that based on her involvement in this case. As I said, she was a junior lawyer. She was working for her boss. That was the position of the Bush campaign at the time. I'm not sure it's fair to extrapolate her, you know, overarching philosophy or view of absentee ballots from that experience. And in fact, experts say that her small role in Bush v. Gore is not necessarily an issue that would cause her to need to recuse herself, nor would it lead to Kavanaugh or Roberts needing to recuse themselves either. I would add that that won't quash what I think there will be some questions about her views on voting rights, on absentee ballots, on her level of partisanship. I think that is going to definitely be an issue that Democrats will will dig into in these hearings. This isn't a rush to justice. This is a rush to put in a justice, a justice whose views are known and who will have a profound impact on your life. We have a president who has refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power after an election. And now he says this election will end up in court. He is putting the Supreme Court in place, in his words, to, quote, look at the ballots, end quote. Beth Reinhardt is an investigative reporter at The Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Over the last few months, I have been thinking a lot about Oregon. We've done a bunch of stories on the podcast about mail-in voting, the controversies and complications with mail-in voting. And every time we do one of these stories, people talk about Oregon. 
the fact that Oregon was the first state to completely shift to vote by mail, that they've been doing it successfully for 20 years, and that everybody there loves it. But I started to get curious about what happened before that. What happened before everyone in Oregon just decided that they were cool with this system? And what can the rest of the country learn from that process? I mean, one thing I remember hearing a lot from people at the time is, okay, this is fine in relatively squeaky clean Oregon, (laughs) but don't try this kind of election in Chicago. That's Jeff Mapes, senior political reporter for Oregon Public Broadcasting. And I called up Jeff because I wanted to hear the definitive story of how vote by mail in Oregon came to be. County clerks loved vote by mail right from the beginning. I mean, remember, they were used to doing absentee ballots. And frankly, they liked the convenience of it. They liked that it was sort of less last minute. You could do a lot more planning in advance. And I'm particularly fit in the mid-80s. I don't want to send you down a whole other rabbit hole here, but we had a big controversy over voting because there was this cult, the Rajneeshis, who set up camp in eastern Oregon. Wait, sorry, what? There was a cult? Yes, called the Rajneeshis. Very famous at the time. I have never heard of this before. I feel like I'm probably missing like a big... Oh, yeah. There was a huge documentary a few years ago, I think on Netflix, if I'm remembering right. People came there from all over the world. In northeastern Oregon, the followers of an Indian guru are now only a vote away from establishing and controlling Oregon's newest city. And then at one point, they started busing in homeless people and registering them to vote because they wanted to take over county government. And so that became a gigantic crisis for state officials trying to vet who should be allowed to register to vote. And one of the issues was that Oregon, you had same-day voter registration, you know, where you could register on election day. And as a result of that whole controversy, uh, voters later, I think in 1986, adopted a constitutional amendment to set the deadline at 20 days before the election. Because they were afraid that all these, like, newly arrived cult members were going to be voting. and Right. And so vote by mail really worked well. You know, you knew exactly what your voting population was well in advance of the election. You could mail out a ballot to all of them. By that point, Oregon had already made it much easier for people to vote absentee if they wanted to, but they also started allowing counties to conduct local elections or special elections exclusively by mail. Not anything big like voting for a governor or senator or president, but small things like city council elections, school board elections, property tax measures, ballot initiatives, special elections. We have many, many elections in Oregon. (laughs) And voters started to report back that they liked filling out their ballot at home. You know, once you start voting by mail, it's kind of hard to go back. (laughs) I remember at first I thought, oh, you know. I, gosh, I really miss the pageantry of Election Day. and Because it feels special. But, you know, the thing I discovered is it's really much more relaxing to fill out your ballot at home. And, and it seemed to me whenever I went to the polls, there would be one thing I'd get into the booth and I'd look at and I'd go, damn, what was that thing about? Why didn't I, why didn't I prepare on that one thing, you know? And that's not a problem you have at home. 
And then, of course, there was the issue of turnout. In 1993, in a somewhat obscure vote over a state constitutional amendment, the counties that held the election in person had turnout in the single digits. The ones that did it by mail had turnout in the mid-30%. So it was a big difference. But even so, all counties still had to have an in-person polling place option for general elections and for primaries. And and at that point, the clerks felt that they were running two different elections. Hmm. And you had all these ballots pouring into the elections offices that, you know, they have to process using one system and you'd have to have a lot of workers there. And at the same time, you would have to staff polling places, which were getting increasingly uncrowded. So, you know, it, it seemed rather inefficient to them. And that's what got the attention of a guy named Phil Kiesling. You maximize costs, you maximize confusion, and and it made no sense. Phil Kiesling is a former Oregon state legislator, a Democrat, who some people have called the father of vote by mail in Oregon, which, for the record, is a title that he is not on board with. Parental rights go to Del Riley and probably Norma Paulus, who was secretary of state. I just got the midwife, the final you know chapter of it. Anyways, Phil Kiesling became the Oregon Secretary of State in 1991, and he started to hear from clerks about how running two kinds of elections at the same time was such a waste of time and resources. One of them said, you know, I think the average age of my poll workers is now about 75. And another clerk leaned over the table and asked, "Uh, Karen, how do you manage to get them so young? (laughs) Everybody laughed. Um, but it reflected concerns that they had. And they started to convince Phil, we should just change the law and make all elections vote-by-mail elections. In 1995, it was my highest legislative priority. And the county clerks and I, we started, you know, lobbying. They found allies in the state legislature, lawmakers who were totally on board with everything that Vote by Mail had to offer, lawmakers who were excited about the fact that it was cheaper and more efficient and also more convenient for older voters and people who lived in rural areas. And those lawmakers were Republicans. At that point, Republicans did think that Vote by Mail gave them an advantage. In fact, Republicans in Oregon had already been pushing their voters to register as permanently absentee. It was a get-out-the-vote strategy, actually, that Republicans used far better than Democrats. And at that time, the state legislature was controlled by Republicans. So on the last day of the 1995 session, they passed the bill that would allow counties to use vote-by-mail in primary and general elections. All it needed was for the governor, a Democrat, to sign the bill. And at first, uh, John Kitzhaber, the new governor at the time, seemed to indicate that he would sign it. But boy, he got a a real earful from a lot of his fellow Democrats Hmm. about the problems in mail voting. What, what What was their rationale? Well, remember 1994. Pretty unexpected catastrophe happened if you were a Democrat. Good evening. We begin tonight with the most straightforward reaction we've heard all day to the results of yesterday's midterm election. The Democratic chairman, David Wilhelm, said simply, we got our butts kicked. It was an election in which Democrats lost across the country. Republicans are now the majority party, both in the Congress and in the governor's mansions across the nation. And, and this, I think, informed some of the thinking, well, you know, those absentee ballots, they 
tend to be used by older voters. They tend to be used more by Republicans and Democrats. And we've got races in this country that the Democrat looked like they were ahead on election night, and then they counted all the absentees. And then suddenly these Democrats who looked like they were going to win by a narrow margin suddenly are losing. Hmm. And the logic then came, well, gee, absentee ballots are, are bad. So if you give everybody a, quote, absentee ballot, it'll just be worse. That's what I heard. And that is also what the governor of Oregon heard. Kitzhaber really was besieged with a lot of concern about this from Democrats. Fellow Democrats within Oregon, from the Democratic National Committee and the Clinton re-election campaign. And he ended up vetoing the bill. What was your reaction to that, considering the fact that you are a Democrat who is advocating for this and working really hard to get it through, and then you're seeing all these other Democrats essentially undermining all of your work? I, I thought it was just foolish. People didn't understand how the system worked, and people didn't understand that it increases turnout, whether you're young or old or Democrat or Republican or none of the above or rural or urban. And, and, and I, it was sad because if you're in politics, but at the end of the day, you're afraid that when more people vote, you're going to do worse. That's a sad commentary on how you feel about the strength of your own convictions and whether you are representative of the population that you are supposed to represent. So that was that. The bill was vetoed. The whole thing was over. There would be no fully vote-by-mail elections for statewide primaries or general elections. And two months later, I'm with my family in a cabin in Northeast Oregon, and I get a knock on the door from the proprietor and says, Phil, there's somebody who's on the phone who claims to be Senator Mark Hatfield. <laughs> and I said, okay, put him through. I, you know, standing there dirty from, from out with the kids. Well, Hatfield is in the office of Senator Bob Dole, and the news is about to break that there'll be a vacancy in the U.S. Senate because of the Bob Packwood scandal. First of all, no workplace in America ought to tolerate the kind of offensive, degrading sexual misconduct that the Ethics Committee finds Senator Packwood to be guilty of. Bob Packwood is going to resign. And under Oregon law, unlike many other states where it's just an appointment by the governor, Oregon law requires that a vacancy in the Senate, if it occurs during this kind of time frame, is filled by a special election. And even though regular Senate races were not eligible for full mail-in voting, this wasn't a regular Senate election. It was a special election. And so the county clerks were free to do the election entirely by mail. We were going to hold the nation's first all-vote-by-mail election for federal office. I, and I've told people that I, I took probably more pleasure than I should have in calling the Democratic National Committee chair who had who fought to get the bill vetoed to inform him that this is what we were going to do. His first reaction was, well, you can't do that. <laughs> I said, well, if you read ORS so-and-so, you'll learn that it's my call to make and you can do it. And he laughed. He said, well, I guess I can't talk you out of it, can I? <laughs> I go, no, you can't. But it was, it was a risky move. Suddenly, national reporters descending on Oregon asking about this strange system. Are you kidding? This is crazy. How aren't people just going to steal all these ballots and, you know, counterfeit them? And, I mean, everything you've been hearing today, you were hearing back then. 
So then the election finally comes around at the end of 1995. And not only was there no widespread ballot fraud, but turnout was even higher than Phil had hoped. And the primary election had, I think it was about 58 percent turnout. And then the the general election, the second round, Ron Wyden versus Gordon Smith, was 66 percent. And I think that still may be a record in American history for filling a U.S. Senate vacancy. So, so coming out of that election, was the general sense like, oh, that actually went better than we thought it would? Or Right. I'd say there were two major things. One is that it was surprisingly smooth, just how fast it was on election night to get mm. the results. And then, of course, the big thunderclap was that, spoiler alert, the Democrats won that race, and they won a close race. Supporters of Democrat Ron Wyden wait for his arrival to celebrate his victory in the nation's first ever mail-in election of a U.S. senator. And all of a sudden now, with this big Democratic victory, there started to be a real change in how, how the political parties viewed vote by mail. And so then, this is the part of the story that I find completely wild. The whole thing that happened before happened again, but in reverse. In 1997, another bill was brought to the floor of the Oregon state legislature to extend vote by mail to all elections. But this time, it was Democrats supporting it, and Republicans were the ones who blocked the bill from being passed. I think almost, if not all, of the Republicans who voted on that 1995 bill before it got vetoed, including Gordon Smith, (laughs) Every one of them pulled a 180 and decided this was a bad idea. Well, how did that make you feel when that happened? When when you saw how quickly politicians flipped on this issue once it appeared to be disadvantageous to them? Well, it made me it made me feel the same way I do now, which is that uh, uh, this is really sad and infuriating. But he did have one last plan. He was going to take the question directly to the voters with a ballot measure. He and a bunch of other vote by mail advocates, including many of these county clerks, they collected 100,000 signatures. The question was put on the ballot in the general election in 1998, and it was passed with almost 70 percent of the vote. And we have not done any kind of election other than vote by mail since then. And it just happened that the first presidential election that Oregon did completely vote by mail was in 2000. And going into it, everyone was nervous that there would be some kind of disaster or mess up or delay. And Oregon's crazy new voting system would be the laughingstock of the nation. Ultimately, turnout was 85 percent. Ballot counting went off without a hitch. And it turned out that in the days after the 2000 election, there were some other issues in other parts of the country that left Oregon looking pretty good. What do you think is like the lesson learned from that process that could apply to the rest of the country as we're having these conversations now about, like, is mail-in voting the thing that we should be doing? What we learned in Oregon, that once people tried it for the first time, a huge percentage of them not only liked it, but loved it. I've had people come up to me and say, 
I am so glad we did it. I don't understand why everybody else doesn't do it. And again, I ask them, what do you like about it? And, you know, it's not just the, you know, the convenience and not having the vicissitudes of life intervene. It's being a more informed voter. But, you know, when I asked Jeff this same question, one of the things that he said was not just about how much Oregon system seems to have worked over the past 20 years, but how much the system in other parts of the country seems to have not worked. The thing that just strikes me once again, looking at what happens and has happened in other states during the pandemic and the primary voting, even before the pandemic, where you've seen these long, long lines of voters, you know, waiting to get into the polling places to vote. It's a shocking scene, I guess I would say, for somebody from Oregon to watch. In fact, the older I get, the more... Uh, it just amazes me that we allow those situations to occur. And and that looks much worse to me than, you know, any, any problems with male voting. Jeff Mapes is a senior political reporter for Oregon Public Broadcasting. Phil Kiesling is the founder of the National Vote at Home Institute. And that documentary about the Rajneesh cult that Jeff mentioned is called Wild Wild Country. It is, in fact, on Netflix. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. The news is moving fast, with a Supreme Court confirmation hearing beginning in the Senate and a presidential election in just a couple of weeks. Stay on top of it by subscribing to The Post. We have a deal for our listeners at postreports.com slash offer. You can get digital access for a whole year for just $29. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.